Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. 60 years ago, on April 12, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested for participating in a nonviolent protest against racial segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the most racially divided cities in the United States at the time. The protest was part of the Birmingham campaign, which aimed to challenge segregation and the unjust treatment of Black citizens in the city. Dr. King, along with other civil rights leaders, organized demonstrations, sit-ins, and marches to draw attention to the racial injustice present in Birmingham. The city officials obtained a court injunction to prohibit the protests, and the local police force used this injunction as a basis to arrest those who continue to participate in the demonstrations. Dr. King decided to defy the injunction, believing it was unjust and deliberately allowed himself to be arrested on April 12, 1963. This act of civil disobedience was part of his broader strategy to create tension and urgency around the issue of racial segregation and to force the authorities to negotiate with the civil rights movement. In a statement published in the Birmingham News that same day, eight white religious leaders from Alabama called for an end to the protest and criticized Dr. King as an outsider causing unrest. While in jail, Dr. King wrote his famous letter from Birmingham jail, which eloquently defended the use of nonviolent civil disobedience in the fight against injustice and racial inequity. In recognition of the 60th anniversary of the letter from Birmingham jail, on this show tonight, we'll explore the historical backdrop of the letter, Dr. King's motivation for penning it, the impact his letter had on the civil rights movement and its continued relevance in today's society. We are joined by two renowned scholars and theologians who will share their insights and interpretations of this enduring masterpiece. We have joining us the Reverend Dr. Jonathan C. Augustine. Dr. Augustine is the senior pastor of St. Joseph AME Church in Durham and a law professor at NCCU School of Law. Dr. Augustine is the author of several books and his most recent was published last month and is titled When Prophets Preach, Leadership and the Politics of the Pulpit. Also joining us is the Reverend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Reverend Wilson Hartgrove is a spiritual writer, preacher, and community cultivator. He serves as Assistant Director for Partnership and Fellowships at the Yale University Center for Public Theology and Public Policy. And he is an Associate Minister at the St. John's Missionary Baptist Church, this church here in Durham. He is also the author of several books, including 
Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you. What a pleasure it is to be with you. I appreciate you deeply. A delight to be here. All right. Thank you both. Okay, so let's start off with um, our conversation. Can both of you share your thoughts on, one, what, why did Dr. King feel it was so important to respond to those religious leaders who were criticizing him and others who were engaged in, in protest? And Dr. Augustine, let's start with you. Thank you so much. Um, I am I am deeply impressed by number one, King's theology and King's philosophy of using nonviolence uh, to engage in direct action uh, to change social circumstance was really the motivation behind his uh, uh, his acts. Um, in the study of Christian leadership, you look at what is often called the Monist Triplex Doctrine of the threefold office: the prophet, the priest, or the king. Uh, a king as a pastor certainly would have acted uh, as the king or as the royal, to put it in non-gender specific terms. He certainly would have acted as the priest, uh, but when we think about his leadership in Birmingham, his leadership with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he really, really was acting as a prophet, uh, showing prophetic leadership, both proverbially and literally speaking truth to power, or as I like to say, speaking truth to the institution of power. Uh, having a firm understanding of what the First Amendment meant and is supposed to mean, uh, and that the uh, the injunction that uh, uh, that Police Commissioner Bull Connor successfully got against him was unjust. He quotes in the letter uh, Saint Augustine, uh, "An unjust law is no law at all." Uh, so his motivation and his theology was one of equality and egalitarianism, and he was seeking to bring attention to his cause, obviously by peaceful protest and civil disobedience, and I have the utmost admiration for his actions. You know, as I've been reading the letter this year, uh, remembering um, uh, the context then, and thinking about the context today, uh, one of the most striking things to me is that uh, Dr. King, as uh, brilliant as a uh, movement strategist as he was, uh, his strategy was informed by the fact that he was a preacher. And um, he went to jail on Good Friday. And if you're a preacher uh, and you know the Christian story, um, you know that that's an intentional move. It was an intentional move to escalate the struggle and to invite people to see what was happening in terms of their faith. And so he goes into jail on Good Friday, and he spends Easter weekend writing this missive. You know, this is, this is his Easter sermon. He's not going to be in the pulpit on Sunday, but he takes the opportunity to proclaim through this letter uh, the power of uh, nonviolence and the power of a people who are determined to. Um, to be committed to the truth that they know uh, is, is going to win, even if the law as it currently stands uh, doesn't recognize it. And uh, it's, it's an incredible witness and, and one that um, I was reminded of this Easter because we had our brothers over in Tennessee choosing on Easter weekend. Both of them, by the way, very good preachers <laughs> choosing on Easter weekend to say, uh, democracy is being squashed in Tennessee. This isn't new. It's been happening sometime, but here's an opportunity uh, 
to escalate the struggle in a movement that is not going to tolerate this anymore. Um, I thought it was a, a powerful reflection of Dr. King's wisdom that these young brothers were, uh, were, were leaning into in our own moment. And, and April, if you'll allow me, or April and Herb, if you'll allow me to just very briefly follow uh, Jonathan's comments, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, particularly in terms of the wonderful oratory that was given on the floor of the, uh, the Tennessee House of Representatives. They are great preachers, uh, but the but the theology that they lifted up in, in talking about the resurrection, right? I was I was so impressed, um, and it reminds me of a part of King's letter, a letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, where he cites the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, specifically to remind those members of the clergy to whom he's responding and writing the letter that this is this is not new. This act of civil disobedience I'm doing, it's it's here to bring attention uh, to an unjust system, but this is not new. This is as old as the uh, as the Bible itself and as old as the Hebrew traditions. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, during the Babylonian exile. So I deeply, deeply appreciate the theology back then, and I certainly appreciate the application of our brothers over in Tennessee now. You know, to, to put this in, in some kind of context, though, because this was not an isolated uh, event. It was certainly an isolated letter, but it was not an uh, isolated event in the struggle. Can you kind of talk about you know, what was happening in uh, Birmingham at that time? April, in her uh, opening, uh, talked about this being one of the most uh, divided cities uh, in, uh, in the country uh, at the time. So can you kind of just talk to our audience about what was going on in Birmingham uh, at that time that uh, would support this notion of how divided uh, Birmingham was and why it is so much uh, so uh, outlandish than uh, what was going on uh, in North Carolina uh, in, uh, in 1963. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, one, one of the things that strikes me uh, about the letter is um, the, the organizing that had gone on uh, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in terms of even choosing to come to Birmingham at this moment. Um, this, of course, is um, 63, and um, they have been uh, organizing uh, for some time to have citywide campaigns uh, to challenge uh, Jim Crow segregation. That was, of course, what happened in Montgomery that sort of broke open the possibility that a uh, nonviolent campaign could do this. And let me just say, um, <clears throat> because I think this is important background to the story, is that there are people, there were people, including people from North Carolina Central, who had been working for decades at that point to build a coalition of people who shared this vision. Um, we have records of this network of uh, folks from church uh, networks and from HBCU networks who had been meeting regularly uh, to talk about the possibility of the militant, nonviolent, reconciling ethic of Jesus being put into practice to challenge Jim Crow. And um, some of their students, some of the students of the people who taught, you know, in, in, out of that network were people like Martin Luther King and James Farmer. And so, you know, the very fact that SCLC had come to be was the product of really, you know, dozens and dozens, hundreds of people working together uh, for a generation to, uh, to, to, to focus the energies 
of, um, uh, of their religious and their moral values on uh, how they could organize uh, in order to uh, overcome this uh, incredible indignity. So that's what SCLC was trying to do. And they had tried in Albany and they had run up uh, uh, against uh, this, this challenge, namely that, um, that they could not uh, get the country to see how um, uh, um, severe and uh, dehumanizing Jim Crow was because the um, uh, police chief down there, um, he, he was a little too polite. You know, when they would say, let's pray, he told his deputies, bow your head and pray with them. And, uh, and so uh, the, the movement in Albany didn't go all the way and didn't expose the violence of Jim Crow in the way that they knew a nonviolent movement had to. And so the decision to go to Birmingham was very intentional, very intentional decision to go to a place where people on the ground knew that Bull Connor could not hold his temper. He was, uh, he was so um, virulent in his racism that he would lash out. But the trouble they were having in the movement is that they couldn't, um, you know, when, when you start building a campaign, you always have to escalate. You always have to move it up so that it gets more people involved, so that it, 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 it demonstrates more solidarity. And uh, they were having a hard time doing that. So the decision to go to jail is very intentionally a decision to escalate the struggle, to bring more people in, to draw the nation's attention. And, um, and, and so... That's some of the background of what's going on uh, that I think it's important for us to remember. I, I think it's also important uh, in noting the name of the organization. Uh, Dr. King was not just there as an individual, but he was there as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. When you read uh, Adam Fairclough, for example, to redeem the soul of America, uh, and he unpacks uh, why King was so deliberate as they were going through various iterations of what the name of this group, this this regional focused on the on the South, obviously, but this regional organization would be. They were deliberate in wanting to lift up the reconciling nature of Jesus's work by calling it the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and obviously they focused on a uh, uh, on fights that were necessary to have in the South. Um, uh, uh, this was nothing new. This this the discrimination in the Jim Crow. Uh, that was being uh, uh, that that the that African Americans were subjected to in Birmingham was certainly not unique. Uh, it was something that was very prevalent in the South. In writing the letter and responding to why is he here, uh, King notes, uh, "I'm here in Birmingham because injustice is in Birmingham." He's very specific in noting Paul of Tarsus. Paul was an itinerant ministry who traveled uh, to spread the good news, to spread the liberating news to various churches throughout the Greco-Roman world. And he kept in touch with them uh, by writing letters. Uh, King did the same. I, I appreciate Jonathan lifting up and calling it this his, his, Easter, uh, his Easter sermon, his Resurrection Sunday sermon, because obviously he was confined behind bars, serving as an itinerant ministry, uh, trying to share the good news of liberation and hope. One of the things that Dr. King mentions in his letter is his disappointment, uh, his disappointment in the religious leaders that were um, criticizing the civil disobedience that were uh, asking that things be kind of slowed down, just, you know, take your time, we don't have to rush. He also expressed disappointment in uh, those that were moderate, he expressed concern about those educated Blacks who are 
too content with the status quo. Can you talk about um, his the points that he made in the letter surrounding his disappointment in these particular groups? Um, I will I will go backwards in time if you'll allow me. I'll fast forward to 1967. This is obviously four years after his incarceration in Birmingham. But uh, but King gave an amazing address on April the 4th, 1967, exactly one year before his untimely assassination uh, at the Riverside Church in New York, where he was criticizing our troop escalation policies in Vietnam, obviously uh, still uh, the racist or the segregated nature of our armed forces. Uh, in the in the speech is oftentimes quoted, it was one line from a very powerful speech, but it's oftentimes quoted as the fierce urgency of now. So to your point, there was a fierce urgency of now back in 1963. Uh, he was very critical of the uh, of the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Uh, he was very critical of apathy, uh, very critical of, of African-Americans, in particular educated African-Americans who felt I have arrived and everything is going to be okay. And the, uh, the slow down clergy, as I like to call them, those who wanted uh, more moderate steps uh, uh, really had had held the status quo for far too long. So I deeply appreciate uh, King's urgency of now, back then uh, in 1963, because he was determined to make sure uh, that, that we would no longer have to wait. We would take affirmative steps. We would do so in a nonviolent way uh, to show that justice was on our side, to show that we were not rabble rousers, uh, but we were civilly disobedient, right? Unlike, if I can use a contrast from the present day and age, unlike those that stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing, but we should never have to be disagreeable and we should never have to resort to violence to make our positions heard. So I have the utmost respect for King in criticizing the slow down clergy and also criticizing the citizens who uh, were apathetic in their responses to the subjugation uh, of Jim Crow segregation. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Eagle uh, Review, and we are talking with uh, Reverend Dr. Jonathan uh, Augustine and uh, the Reverend Dr. Uh, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove uh, about the uh, letter from the uh, Birmingham jail by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in uh, 1963, April 1963. Uh, we're going to uh, take a break. Right now, and when we come back, we're going to come back with uh, uh, Dr. Hargrove's uh, comments uh, to the uh, question that uh, was just uh, posed. But we want you to stay with us, and we will be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. 
The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our conversation uh, about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's famous letter from the uh, Birmingham jail. And uh, our guest uh, this evening, uh, Reverend Dr. Jonathan uh, Augustine, who is the uh, senior pastor at St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, and of course, a uh, law professor at the uh, North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law, uh, joined by Reverend uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, uh, who is the uh, Assistant Director of Partnerships and Fellowship at Yale University Center for Public Theology and Public uh, Policy. When we took our break, uh, we were in the middle of a uh, answer uh, about the uh, audience for the uh, letter from the Birmingham jail and who it was that uh, Dr. King was speaking to and why uh, was he uh, speaking to the kind of a diverse audience uh, that's uh, raised in the, uh, in the letter. So uh, with that, we're going to go to uh, uh, Jonathan uh, for uh, his response to that question. Well, thank you. You know, I've actually, over the past several years, as we've seen a resurgence of white Christian nationalism in this country, um, I have challenged uh, many of my uh, fellow clergy of the uh, lighter skin tone to go back and read not uh, Brother Martin's letter from the Birmingham jail, but the letter he was responding to. Because when you go back and read what these ministers were saying to him and about him in the press, it sounds strikingly similar to the way that many so-called uh, moderate uh, preachers and others uh, have, have responded to the extremism in our own moment, which is to say that I think there is a habit of whiteness that um, has tried to uh, say that the common ground uh, somewhere in the middle between um, extremism and uh, what do you call the other end, normality? <laughs> you know, that, that, that some common ground in the middle is where we can meet. And I think King very wisely points out to these folks that... Um, that we do have to come to a common ground, but it's not in the middle between, you know, extremism and um, and and where we should be. It it has to be about what we have in common, right? It has to be about our common humanity. It has to be about uh, this tradition that we share that has common values, um, and the fact that um, that we have betrayed those values and that we have allowed uh, extremists to control. 
um, our political life and our economy is, of course, why Jim Crow endured for so long and is why today uh, we have um, many other forms of injustice, including racial injustice that has endured under other names. And so, and so I think um, this, uh, this response is, is a real invitation for people to get beyond um, this habit of thinking that, uh, uh, you know, that we, you know, in, in, a, in a time that's divided more than ever between red and blue, we need to find some kind of purple. No, we don't need purple. We need to find some justice. We need to find some truth. And if, if there's a political party that's forsaken justice, then, then uh, they need to be called to repentance. We don't need some place in the middle. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in the letter, you know, not only is he addressing the, uh, the ministers who were the object of, or the focus of the uh, news editorial uh, there that uh, you mentioned, but and moderate uh, whites uh, who were on the scene during that uh, time. But he also lifted up uh, the uh, division within uh, African-American communities. Uh, when he talked about uh, the uh, Nation of Islam mm. at that time, uh, led by uh, the Honorable Elijah uh, Muhammad as being uh, the uh, one extreme. Uh, then he lifted up the uh, uh, African-American educated uh, class who thought that they had uh, arrived and were uh, profiting uh, from this, uh, this segregation uh, that, uh, that continued uh, to exist. And then uh, lifted up kind of veilly the uh, those African Americans who had accepted segregation as a as a way of life and uh, as such were refu were refusing to get involved in the uh, effort to uh, destroy uh, Jim Crow. So can you can you kind of talk about the uh, the latter, latter conflict uh, that uh, King addressed kind of obliquely? Uh, not directly, but raised it up as uh, something that uh, uh, that we ought to consider as a as a pointed uh, uh, focus of the uh, of the letter that he raised. So, uh, uh, Jay, you want to start us with that? Sure. So, Dr. King obviously gets a lot of attention. Still, attention in this day and age. There's a national holiday uh, in his honor. There is a, a monument in Washington in his honor. Uh, he gets a lot of attention as, a, as the most celebrated figure of the civil rights movement. But to revisit the time frame of the civil rights movement, uh, there was there was certainly not unanimity. There was certainly not a, 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 a monolithic view of the way things should be. King was one spokesperson. He had some pretty strong ideals, some very good ideals, I believe. But there certainly was conflict that he had to work through and conflict that he led through. Uh, there was conflict within the realm of Christianity. Um, uh, he was much more on the pro progressive side, obviously, of Christianity than was Joe Jackson, who was the leader uh, of a of a much more conservative uh, a part of uh, of the Baptist Church in particular, but a much more conservative wing of Christianity. Um, I am I am amazed as I go back and revisit King's letters, his his many writings, his books. If there's any one thing I would say about him. The expression still holds true. He's somebody who was far ahead of his time. Um, uh, Jonathan lifted up white Christian nationalism. It is a that's a term now that is very prevalent in our in our uh, uh, common day expressions. Um, it is a conflation of cross and country. 
uh, that seeks to maintain a hierarchical order of things in America has very little to do with theology, very little to do with church orthodoxy, but it has everything to do with power. It is really white Christian nationalism that King was fighting against. Uh, white Christian nationalism says that uh, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism reigns supreme and other things must be subservient to it, including the rights of African-Americans, including the protections of Jews, including uh, uh, immigrants who have come to this country and immigrants who are trying to come to the country. Uh, King was ahead of his time because he was out front fighting for justice and egalitarianism and equality for all people. And that's really why he was traveling around the South, traveling around the country, but focusing on, on the South with uh, with SCLC. And that is the heart of why he was in Birmingham, deliberately in Birmingham at that time when he was incarcerated. You know, the uh, divisions that you were noting within the African-American community, you know, you know, had existed for a long time. I mean, they were right there in Alabama, um, home of the, you know, Tuskegee Institute, and the whole debate between uh, uh, Booker T. Washington and his notion that you could go along with Jim Crow if it could serve to your economic betterment, and uh, uh, Du Bois, who was probably the most vocal um, uh, opponent of that, and who had insisted that it was uh, demeaning to the humanity of African Americans to uh, to accept it. Uh, that 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 debate, you know, had gone on, and in some ways, I think it was always a strategic debate. You know, to to what degree could you challenge a system that you had to survive under? Um, and so, I I think that that is uh, part of what uh, um, creates the different ways of thinking and divisions that existed. But the one thing I would add uh, is that we know now, um, and uh, just recently uh, learned more from a, a book that uh, Lerone Martin has just published um, uh, out at the uh, MLK Institute at Stanford. Uh, he has a new book on the gospel according to J. Edgar Hoover. And one of the things he writes about in there is how uh, the national security state uh, intentionally exploited these ideological divisions and invested in uh, people like um, this brother who had a, a, a TV show at the time. His name was the Prophet Michaud. And um, uh, they got with him and said, we need you to uh, uh, attack King and to accuse him of being anti-Christian and, uh, and, and really push this... Um, this you know notion that your faith is just about your individual relationship with God and you ought not get involved in politics and this brother's going on TV regularly doing that and then you know when 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 uh, things develop a little further beyond 63 uh, they actually have him the, the FBI is encouraging him to protest King in places where King is do is doing actions uh, so he's showing up and lead, leading public protests so it's it's fascinating that the you know that the, the the white power structure uh, understands these divisions and intentionally uses them in order to diminish King's influence uh, while all this is going on. So, uh, so yes, he's naming that in the letter and it gets used uh, and used against the movement uh, as, as things develop to the 60s. And as we think about strategies to undercut the movement, one of the things that Dr. King uh, mentions in his letter is that, you know, those who are in power do not willingly give it up. And he, you know, that kind of harkens back to Frederick Douglass. Um, can you talk about this notion that if you want change, you have to engage in 
disruption. Now, of course, King's focus was nonviolent disruption, but disruption nevertheless. Can you share your thoughts on that? And Jonathan, um, let's start with you. Yeah, well, um, I think it, it reflects um, the long Black-led freedom struggle that uh, that you point to there. I mean, uh, uh, Douglas's quote comes to mind, but but you know the the many ways that the uh, that the abolitionist movement uh, had had learned and had taught the country that nothing was going to change without a very direct confrontation, um, and of course that's met with a violent backlash and it leads to war and it's you know it's a um, um, an incredibly uh, painful part of the history but the reconstruction era you know in in our history is also met with a violent backlash and uh, people have to learn in the face of that how, you know how are they going to respond and the uh, I mean, the disagreements that we were just discussing uh, somewhat emerge out of that. But I think the movement that really leads to and helps to produce King and other leaders in the mid 20th century is the one that says, you know, in the face of this kind of violence, we're going to have to survive. Some people have to get away to survive. So you have, you know, a, a, a mass migration that happens internal to the country. But as people survive, they also build organizations. And I think this is an, an, an incredibly important part of the legacy that King and others inherit is, you know, all of the organization building that happens from the late 19th century into the early 20th century. You know, we, 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 we have places where um, uh, people are building, you know, schools and educational institutions, organizations like the NAACP and other, you know, anti-racist organizations that, that didn't have as long of a life as, as the NAACP has had. But these organizations become sort of a, a center for people to begin to uh, strategize about, you know, where are the points of weakness where this system can be confronted and what are the means through which we could confront it in, in ways that would be effective. And so, uh, uh, and, I, and I, I really think that the conversations that happened in those circles for decades about what could be learned from Gandhi are also incredibly important. You know, many, many folks from those circles um, uh, went to India to learn from Gandhi and Gandhi's struggle. And uh, there's that famous conversation that we have on record between him and Howard Thurman, uh, where he, Thurman and, and Gandhi have this discussion. And, you know, Gandhi's, Gandhi most is most curious about why in the world are your people Christian? He said, let me get this straight. <laughs> let me get this straight. These people who call themselves Christian, you know, put you on slave ships and brought you over here and, you know, said that you were their property and you call yourselves Christian? And Thurman, you know, explained to him, well, um, uh, yes, there is that kind of Christianity, but there's also the Christianity that, you know, I learned from my grandmother, you know, <laughs> people who knew that, that Jesus can set you free. And, uh, and, and who knew that those folks, you know, were uh, were lying about the story they were telling. You know, that's why we sing everybody <laughs> talking about heaven ain't going there. You know, <laughs> these are the songs that have been passed down from that tradition. So, so, so they had that conversation. But then Thurman says to Gandhi, we want you to come to the United States because your nonviolent movement needs to come to the, uh, in the language of that time, the language they used, uh, to the Negro people of the United States. And uh, Gandhi responds by saying, I don't know if I will ever come to the United States, 
But I know nonviolence will come to the United States. And when it comes to the United States, it will go to the world. Um, it's an incredible sort of prophecy that uh, Gandhi could see because he understood the role that the United States was playing in the emerging economic order of that time. And it's a story that was widely remembered in the movement and uh, you know, all of the many people who, 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 who helped to build the movement in the mid 20th century. One of my teachers, Vincent Harding told me one time that uh, when he was watching the footage from Tiananmen Square and he heard the people singing in a language he didn't understand, but a tune he knew, <laughs> he heard them singing in Chinese, we shall overcome. He knew that Gandhi's prophecy was true, that nonviolence had gone to the world through the Southern Freedom Movement. I, um, I think when we look back and examine King's nonviolent action, uh, King was motivated, if I can summarily say, uh, he was motivated by politics. And, and, and my use of the term politics should not be confused with partisanship. It is intended to go to the etymological origins of the term affairs of the cities, right? It comes to us from the Greek, it's affairs of the cities. He was concerned about fairness and equity uh, and in terms or insofar as Christianity was very, very much divided. There were some who believed in the, in the supremacy of piety to the exclusion of politics. And there were others like King who gave a visual of the cross. The, the church should never be so heavenly holy that the church can be no earthly good, right? Um, so King believed in politics as in affairs of the cities in order to effectuate uh, much of the change that he thought was necessary to live out the reconciling ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, when I think about uh, some books that have been very impactful for me, one that really documents this is um, The Divided Mind of the Black Church. Uh, Raphael Warnock, now U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, his first book, does a wonderful job of tracing out some of those divisions of how piety and politics had been in conflict. Uh, but as far as King's execution, his theology and his living out his theology, there should not be a conflict. The two really, really go hand in hand. Um, when you think now in a contemporary context about the morality and the morally driving forces of egalitarianism that motivated King and those who were religious leaders at the time, uh, those same morally motivating forces are present now, but in a much more secular sense and a much in a much less church oriented sense. Uh, but the but letter from Birmingham jail has had a tremendous influence on current movements particularly where civil disobedience is involved, including the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so the letter has continuing impact, I think because society has become more secular in many regards, we have, we have extracted uh, the principles of the letter to give them more universal application as to where for King, obviously Jonathan said it well earlier, at his heart, King was a preacher. Um, uh, they, had, they had a very Christocentric origin for King, uh, but now the principles are still there, but they have more of a secular, uh, a secular impact. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And this month marks the 60th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail. And this hour, we're talking about the motivations behind Dr. King pinning it, its impact on the civil rights movement and its continued relevance today. We have joining us here in our Zoom studio, Reverend Dr. Jonathan C. Augustine. He is the senior pastor of St. Joseph's AME Church in Durham and law professor here at NCCU School of Law and author of a recently published book titled, When Prophets Preach, Leadership and the Politics of the Pulpit. 
Also joining us is Reverend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He is Assistant Director for Partnerships and Fellowships at Yale University Center for Public Theology and Public Policy, an Associate Minister at the St. John's Missionary Baptist Church here in Durham, and author of Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal uh, Review, and we are continuing our conversation about the uh, letter from the uh, Birmingham Jail by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, its impact then and its relevance and impact uh, today. Uh, and I want to just start us out in this uh, latter part of our discussion with uh, what is the relevance today? of Dr. King's uh, letter in light of the fact that uh, many people uh, have not read uh, this letter and only get sound bites from others as to uh, its existence. Uh, what do you see from your, your perspective as uh, the, the relevance and impact as we move forward with, with, with many of the same actors with different names? Uh, the Tea Party, the White Christian National uh, List uh, that's a part of uh, the political movement uh, today. Uh, how do we frame uh, King's uh, letter from the Birmingham jail? So let's start with uh, uh, Reverend Augustine. So if there is any, thank you so much for a very provocative question. If there is any takeaway, uh, 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 the letter obviously speaks to civil disobedience. There, there are several portions, as I mentioned earlier, uh, King talks directly about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their refusal to bow down to what was a conflated church and state under King Nebuchadnezzar, the refusal to comply with what they morally deemed, to quote St. Augustine, an unjust law is no law at all. Um, I think we are seeing that in an area uh, where where America is, is, is hurting and America is behind. And I don't say this in a in a partisan sense. I say it in a in a uniform sense because we've been hurting under Democratic administrations. We've been hurting under Republican administrations, and that is in the area of immigration. Um, um, our immigration policies uh, leave so much to be desired in the United States. We are so far behind uh, in enacting meaningful immigration laws. 
Um, we have had instances where so many have been turned away at the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, where children have been separated from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we've had instances where um, uh, compassion has arisen in so many in the United States and certainly among those in the clergy ranks. Uh, when you think about the chronological impact of the letter and where civil disobedience manifests in the body politic, the letter obviously was written in the early 1960s. But in the early 1980s, we began a sanctuary movement uh, to uh, to house where faith leaders stepped out <clears throat> following the example of civil disobedience. Faith leaders were very deliberate in housing those who needed refuge uh, uh, in places of worship, places where there's there was not an opportunity to be arrested uh, uh, by governmental actors and the like. That same concept, there's a there's a sanctuary movement 2.0 that's underfoot now. Uh, as faith leaders are responding to the need for meaningful immigration reform and are and are morally motivated, as King was in writing the letter, morally motivated to do that which is right and to civilly disobey uh, what are what are deemed unjust laws. So I think I think that the letter remains relevant in many regards, but at least one for me as a faith leader and how it how it jumps out, its relevance continues. Is that in terms of uh, um, the dire need we have for immigration reform and, and why it's necessary for somebody to hold government's feet to the fire. You do that through civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very helpful. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm grateful for those sanctuary churches. It's a, it's a beautiful community of people who are trying to uh, imagine a multi-ethnic America together. Uh, I'm this week uh, just coming back from Nashville, Tennessee, and so that's on my mind. And one of the things that um, is happening there, that's happening in most Southern state houses, is um, democracy is being denied by um, uh, extremist caucuses that um, have uh, gerrymandered themselves into supermajorities um that uh, use voter suppression tactics you know to uh, uh to, to make to make it so that their power cannot be challenged and um uh, what's happened at, at this moment in nashville is that um the insanity of uh those folks in power with regards to guns has brought together a coalition of people who realize that um, these folks are willing to let most of us die rather than give up their power or change uh, their mind on anything. Um, but that's just kind of one uh, example of the bigger issue. Like it's not just guns, right? It's about sort of everything that's happening in government. And in many ways, I think we can learn from this history that that's often how uh, direct action to confront um, uh, powers works. Um, you know, uh, when the students did the sit-ins, um, you know, it was a it was about having a seat at the lunch counter most immediately. But uh, Miss Baker, Ella Baker, uh, wrote a piece right right after the sit-ins got started that said uh, um, that it's about more than a hamburger, right? I mean, it, you know, that was the 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 indignity of not being able to sit at the counter that white folks to sit at was the was the point at which you could challenge the system. But she said, look, you know, even once you get a seat at the lunch counter, if you are not able to earn enough money that you can buy the hamburger, then you've yep. got 
you know, another issue you got to deal with. Um, so I think the fundamental question that uh, the movement was asking then, and that I think the movement for justice is asking today is, are we willing as a country to be a multi-ethnic democracy where people share power so that everyone can thrive? Uh, that was the fundamental question of the South. And I think one of the things that Dr. King pointed folks toward um, was that uh, we all have a stake in this, right? He, he, he says it uh, even more explicitly than in the letter a couple of years later uh, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march, he says, he says look, you know, this, um, this Jim Crow system uh, has uh, segregated folks and created this hierarchy that tells, you know, white people that they're better than black people, but all it offers white, poor white folks, you know, is the, uh, is the bird of Jim Crow to eat. <laughs> he said, when all you have to feed your kids is Jim Crow, your kids are still hungry at night. And so there's a kind of, there's a kind of way in which um, uh, I think directly confronting uh, an unjust system nonviolently can expose um, the way that the system isn't benefiting most people and can be invitational, right? Can invite folks in. Um, that's what I see happening in Nashville. That's what I see happening um, at places around the country. Um, it's why right here in North Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, tomorrow on Monday, there'll be people down at the state house for a moral Monday because, because people are coming together across lines of race and class and even political ideology to say, if we have a government that's not benefiting most of us, then we need to take direct action to expose the violence of that system. Uh, as Irv mentioned, there are many who have not read this letter. And Reverend Wilson Hartgrove, you mentioned that we can learn from this history how to move forward as we try to improve society. Can both of you share your thoughts on the, the need to expose this history to our young people in particular, but not exclusively, of course, you know, all of us can benefit from learning this history, but a concern that many of us have, and, and I know all of us on this call have, is that there is an effort to try to um, whitewash the history. We see that often when it comes to Dr. King and, and the way that he is presented uh, to hide the history, to dilute the history so that feelings aren't hurt. But this, this letter is incredibly powerful and there's a lot to be gained and a lot to be learned from this history. Can you share your thoughts on the importance of us revisiting this letter and, and also um, other actions that have taken place historically? So there are two things that come to mind. Uh, one, one biblical, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, history certainly repeats itself and that lends to the, the popular uh, expression or axiom, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It is imperative that we know the lessons of history because history truly does repeat itself. Uh, well before Dr. King, obviously, 1877 uh, is a year that should ring out for us all. Uh, there was an amazing amount of prosperity that African-Americans enjoyed uh, during the period of Reconstruction and then 
when the federal troops were withdrawn from the South, there was a period of redemption, a period of retrenchment. We want our country back. But there was a deliberate, violently orchestrated efforts to roll back much of the progress that was made during Reconstruction. Horribly, in 1968, after Dr. King's assassination in April, uh, with the rhetoric that the Nixon campaign uh, 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 used, uh, uh, we're going to we're going to uh, use law and order against those people, those protesters, those people who were in the street, obviously seeking justice uh, in the course of the 1960s. And everything we saw from the 1968 election and the subsequent administrations uh, was an attempt to roll back many of the rights that were hard fought for, hardly fought for uh, 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 during the course of the civil rights movement. We have we have again seen the more things change, the more they stay the same, uh, and there's nothing new under the sun because in the wake of all of the progress, the inclusive inclusivity, uh, the wonderful way in which America was viewed around the world as as can I use the term post-racial? I know it's not a real term, but people thought we were post-racial because of the Barack, because of the administration of Barack Obama. But obviously, the 2016 election taught us we want our country back. Uh, and we and we wrapped it up nicely in a slogan called Make America Great Again. So the point I'm trying to make is that it is so important for us to understand our history. It's a letter that should be celebrated um, uh, regrettably right now in states like Florida, where their governor is campaigning, uh, attempting to make it illegal to talk about uh, uh, the progressive nature of gender, who people are, and they're trying to identify who they are. It's illegal. He would have it to be illegal to talk about racial differences by a vilified boogeyman called critical race theory. Certainly not consistent with the CRT I studied in law school, but whatever their talking points are, it's again, it's an attempt to roll back history and undermine who people are. Uh, attempts to roll back any talk about the Jewish Holocaust and any talk about who our Jewish brothers and sisters really, really are. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to be knowledgeable because again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, that's for sure. Um, two things real quickly. One is that uh, all of these attacks on books and CRT and, um, uh, you know, the, the, these attempts to sort of legislate uh, history, I hope that people who are committed to justice and who've been part of the movement, I mean, let's remember, you know, 2020 saw the largest public demonstration for racial justice in this nation's history in terms of numbers of people on the street. So this is a reaction against something. <laughs> and I hope people recognize that it's a demonstration of the power and the potential of this moment that these folks are so nervous and working so hard to try to stamp <laughs> down what they see as, um, uh, as a challenge to their power. From my own perspective, the second thing I'd say is that uh, I think it's incredibly important for uh, somebody like me, you know, who was who was raised as a white boy in the South, to um, to tell the truth about history in this way, namely that the the boogeyman, the fear that's always stirred up, is that if black folks have power, that's going to be bad for white people, and if historically it's just not true. And one of the ways that uh, I try to remember this just in my own family is we went out, uh, three generations of my family took a trip for the 400th anniversary uh, you know, of uh, 1619. We went over to um, uh, uh, Fort Monroe 
in Virginia where, you know, they have the marker with the, the white lion, the ship that first brought enslaved people to this country landed right there on the shore. It also happens to be the place where uh, three enslaved people got away across the Union line that was there at the river uh, um, uh, at the beginning of the Civil War and got the general who was stationed at Fort Monroe to issue the order that said if enslaved people got away you know, to where the Union troops had control, then they were free. And that became the, the, the practice of the Union Army from that point forward. And so people fled to that fort and, uh, and inside that fort, uh, there's a tree where they, they will tell you if you go, um, uh, the children of uh, enslaved people learn to read under that tree. Uh, until the end of the war, when they were able to uh, establish homes, you know, in in cities of a of a Virginia that had rejoined the Union, and when they did, those folks in Virginia and in North Carolina, where I live, and in other parts of the South, joined coalitions that had one principal demand, namely that uh, public education would be available to all people. So my white family stood under that freedom tree and gave thanks for black people who got political power and made it possible for our people to get an education. <laughs> that's, that's what black power has done in this nation's history. It's made it possible for poor white people to have stuff that the plantation economy would have never let them have if black folks hadn't had power. I think it's important to remember that history. All right. All right. Well, we could we could go on and on. There's so much to to talk about. We so appreciate your insight. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but but we're going to have you both back. Of course, we'd like to thank our guest, Reverend Dr. Jonathan C. Augustine, senior pastor of St. Joseph AME Church here in Durham and law professor at NCCU School of Law and the Reverend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, Assistant Director for Partnerships and Fellowships at Yale University's Center of Public Theology and Public Policy and Associate Minister at St. John's Missionary Baptist Church here in Durham. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show and that you will use this as motivation to go out and to read the letter if you have not yet done so. Um, and if you have, to read it again and to share it with your friends and family. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.